Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi podcast, Naturally Educated. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Zabi, and with me once again is Tim Elliott. All set for today, Tim? Certainly am. I can't wait, Abdurrahman. It's good to be back for episode number three. Oh, yes. All right. It is uh, definitely a fascinating topic today. Um, It's kind of uh, centered on everything we all need to know about, which is how to make sure species survive. Depending on uh, what you read uh, or where you read it, in fact, uh, around 150 to 200 plant and animal species go extinct on average every day. Exactly. It's insanity. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of animals and, and plants. And, you know, around 137 of those species go extinct due to deforestation specifically. Mm. And, you know, current scientific thinking believes that extinction patterns are most likely to be the result of human activity, especially over the past century where human population just skyrocketed. Um, we know that also many scientists believe that annual extinction rates are now accelerating as much as a thousand times faster than historic extinction rates. It's unreal. Yeah, it's insane. And let me just throw another statistic to you, Tim, here, if you don't mind. So we currently know that there have been about 1.2 million species that have been recorded by scientists. Mm -hmm. However, what's left to be discovered is, in fact, very interesting. The number of species that scientists think are left to be discovered are around 8.7 million of course, give or take about a million. Do you know the thing is, I've heard that before, and that's just one estimate. There are so many estimates that kind of conflict with each other. It's hard to sort of know what you really should be thinking. It's hard to know what we really know. The thing I think, the point really is that it's undeniable that biodiversity is under threat. And we've made actually great strides in awareness in terms of the threats to biodiversity in recent times. But there's still a lot to do despite that. Well, there is. And I mean, it's generations of work, isn't it? I mean, to my generation, Mm -hmm. for example, the Earth Summit in Rio, what, 30, I think a little bit more than 30 years ago, jumps to mind. It's where we got the Convention on Biological Diversity. That's Uh, now been signed, let me just quickly Google, check my notes, by 193 (laughs) nations. And Rio was so important because it was all about preventing species loss. That was kind of the main thrust of it. And the aim was uh, a broad agenda and really kind of a new blueprint for international action on environmental, developmental uh, issues. And it was to help guide international cooperation and development policy in the 21st century. So that's for us now. There was also this kind of consensus at the time on combining economic growth with ecological, as we used to call it, responsibility. (laughs) We now know that as sustainable development. So there's the modern phrase for you. The modern phrase indeed. That's that's the only thing I could uh, catch here. It sounds like it was before (laughs) my time. It probably was. (laughs) But, you know, generally, you're right, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really good point. The, the Rio Agreement on Climate Change led to the famous Kyoto Protocol. Mm. Um, mm. And thereafter, of course, the Paris Agreement, which leads to Dubai, <laughs> uh, COP28, here in the UAE, uh, that, that is happening in November to December. 
So let's get back to today's episode, if you don't mind me, Tim. There's something else here. You know, it's it's really important to say that species numbers are really hard to pinpoint because we just don't have and don't know how many species are there. I mean, think about how little we've explored the oceans, for instance. Hmm. Uh, we just don't know what there is you know, in the ocean. And I'm not saying we're set to come across a prehistoric megdalon, uh, but it's often said that we know more about space, imagine, than what's in Earth's oceans. <laughs> There's a sequel to the Meg coming out soon in theaters <laughs> near you. But you know what? You're right. I mean, here's the thing. How can we tell how many species are becoming extinct? I mean, whatever the numbers are, there's an obvious problem in generating any numbers for that reason. Because if no one mm -hmm. knows how many species exist, how can we miss a species if that species goes? That's true. But, you know, what we know is that we're losing species in general, uh, even if we don't know they exist. And I guess because we don't have a precise extinction rate, I mean, it's an unknowable thing, isn't it? It doesn't mean the problem's imagined. We know that the drivers behind species loss are mostly increasing. You know, things like land conversion, degradation, pollution, climate change, those factors. And if you add to that the simple fact that the human population is still growing, you mentioned that earlier, it, it's uh, exploding in lots of ways. Consumption mm -hmm. is therefore growing. Things head quickly towards the unsustainable. So however you look at it, species loss is a serious issue. Mm -hmm. Whether uh, some sources exaggerate that loss or, no, or they don't. Absolutely. You know, Tim, there's another problem faced by, in general, anyone who wants to call attention to this issue. Um, and I fear that people in general are inclined to care more about what we call charismatic animals, um, specifically larger animals that we recognize, uh, obviously cats, dogs, uh, parakeets, or pandas, sure. um, or zebras, etc. Mm. Uh, so, these are animals that we see. They are animals that we somehow relate to through cartoons, etc. Yeah. But there are millions of nameless and microscopic organisms which are also included in species loss models. We should be at least as concerned about such seemingly unimportant species as the ones we mentioned. Mm. The proportions of the world's species that are charismatic organisms, cats, dogs, etc., are actually really small. In fact, they're minuscule. From a biomass point of view, we live in a bacterial planet. There's a thought, Abdurrahman. But again, it's, it's absolutely right. The point is, isn't it, that we need to care about them all. And that's really what we're going to try to, I suppose, condense down in this episode today to see what we can do about the species that we've lost or those that there is a threat of losing. That's really what we're going to try to answer. Exactly. And just before we get into it, though, can you just let people know where to find us and how to get involved with us? For sure. As always, make sure you're following us, getting in touch with us, reach out, share your comments or your story. Let us know what you think. You can find us Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi. That's one word. You can also find us on our website or YouTube at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. So give us a like, hit subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, Abdurrahman, time for today's episode, Ex Situ Conservation in Restoring Extinct Species. 
So with us today, we have Hassal Gahtani, Unit Head Conservation Programs at Al Ain Zoo, also a member of Year of Sustainability Experts Network. Hello, Hassal. It's good to have you with us today. Hello, Abdurrahman. Thank you for having me here today. Our pleasure. Hassal, I want to jump right in and I want to ask you to define and give us context about exitu conservation. What does it mean and what does it imply? Uh, exitu conservation uh, means the protection of endangered species outside their natural habitat in places like zoos, aquarium, mm. botanic garden, uh, where basically they, they have been looked after for the conservation purposes, but outside their natural range. So does that mean, Hessa, if I can just jump in very quickly, that in situ conservation is the opposite, that's in uh, a species natural habitat? Yes, indeed. Institute conservation refers to the conservation activities uh, in the natural uh, habitat of species where, where there are still like we have wild species living there. Hmm. Can you give us, can you expand on that? Give us more examples in, the, in general around the world. How does that look like? Institute conservation and institute conservation, they are actually linked somehow. Hmm. Uh, these days you will see there are a huge number of wild animals. They are actually living in captivity. And these animals, especially the threatened, the threatened species, uh, it brings us uh, to the responsibility where we want actually to, to help them to survive, not only in the captivity. We want actually to go beyond that. So you will see ex-situ experts, they collaborate with institute experts like conservationists, biologists, so they can develop strategies. Uh, they can put plans, action plans uh, to save threatened species and maybe bring them back to the wild. Yeah, so I'm starting to build up the picture here. So ex situ conservation is protection of flora, fauna, animals, plants in a man-made environment, while in situ conservation is in the natural environment. Could you put forward a couple of examples of each to help you know, build on the picture that we have? Yes, sure, uh, Tim. I can actually uh, link to the uh, one successful project that was led by uh, Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi the reintroduction of the scimitar-horned oryx. The scimitar-horned oryx actually is a desert-adapted antelope uh, which roamed in the Saharan uh, and the Sahel region of North Africa. So uh, it actually it's still, it's still listed as extinct in the wild, which means we don't see any scimitar-horned oryx, wild scimitar-horned oryx in the wild anymore. They're not there, they're mm. gone. And the only ones that we can see, those that they are in captivity, we can see them in zoos, for example, private collection. So through the exitu conservation of uh, the scimitar horned oryx since 2000, it was, as I said, classified as extinct in the wild. With the long-term exitu conservation efforts, the scimitar horned oryx was reintroduced successfully in Chad in 2016. And the population are being monitored well to ensure their survival. So let me make this simple. We have the scimitar horned oryx in captivity in Abu Dhabi. The experts in, in, in the Emirates of Abu Dhabi, they were looking after them. They were maintaining the population. Uh, they were ensuring that, uh, that they have um, high genetic value. And at the same time, they collaborated with, with the government of Chad. 
because Chad is the home range of the scimitar horn oryx. So with this collaboration, the both parties, they spoke to each, with each other and they identified the need of reintroducing these oryx back to Africa. So it happened, showing us a great example of a collaboration between ex situ and in situ conservation. I see. And um, just to give context as well, these animals went extinct extinct because of uh, various reasons. I assume one of them is human development or uh, humans uh, being there and impacting their habitat, right? And so these animals, once they get reintroduced, going from uh, extra to institute, um, they kind of have the habitat there ready for them. And uh, they kind of repopulate, grow and thrive, essentially. Yes. Yes. And whatever we are saying now, it's just a long term planning. It doesn't happen in a year or two or three. It's think of about 20 years of work, like habitat restoration. It's not something easy. If you want to, to, to bring back species to the wild, you need to make sure that they have the right habitat, that they can survive. They can have the food, they can have the security. It's like you remove the threats that, what, uh, that were actually the reason why the species declined. Hessa, talk us through what those threats might uh, have been and, and what threats still exist uh, to species, particularly here in the UAE. Threats are everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And we know that we are losing species and they are becoming less in numbers. There are many, many, many reasons why we are actually losing a species. One of the reasons is habitat loss. Uh, where actually species, they don't have their natural habitat so they can survive. They also face poaching. Hmm. Some species, they're being killed for certain reason by poachers. Uh, so without the protection of man, they might not be able to survive in the wild. Other threats also facing the wildlife is climate change. Climate change is it's one of the big factors it's actually affecting the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Also, the unsustainable, the unsustainable living that humans are actually, the way we live as a humans, unsustainable way. We take lots of natural resources without like getting things back. You know, we take from nature, but we don't give nature. Yes. So let us say that the overpopulation of, of a human, it's also a big factor because we are expanding. And when we, are, when we are expanding, we need land to live, right? Of course. Uh, mm-hmm. We need uh, to build houses. We need to build roads. And all of this is actually distracting the natural habitat of species in the wild. I wonder if you can expand about with the climate change aspect of things, because um, I, we know, you know, the devastating uh, impacts of climate change, including loss of uh, certain plants uh, because of uh, higher uh, temperatures and so on, but also resources like water and food and other things. A climate change uh, refers to the change in the environmental uh, condition on Earth due to the greenhouse gases emission uh, that are caused mainly by human activities. Mm-hmm. The Earth is now about uh, 1.1 Celsius warmer than how it used to be before in the past. And it's been expected that the global temperature might raise by 2.7 Celsius by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. So when you think about this, it's like you would say, okay, temperature is going high. It's like 
what's the impact or what's the threat of this? Well, there is a threat. When the temperature goes high, it causes habitat loss. It's a rising temperature affecting the vegetation, the food, the food source, the access to water, and much more. Ecosystems may become uninhabited for certain animals. Also, another problem might occur is the human-wildlife conflict. So climate change might cause a human-wildlife conflict through habitat loss and extreme climate events, like, let us say, natural disaster. Um, Like, uh, I'm sure you heard about um, the bushfires in, in Australia. So if this happens, if, if bushfires happens, if you think about it deeply, actually it's the natural habitat for species is gone. What happened to the species living there? The forests are gone. Then everything is gone. And even the human who is living nearby these, uh, these areas, they will need to move. They will need to find new places. So here, a new conflict started. Of course. Um, I wonder if you can expand on the threatened species um, classification. How do we classify a species uh, as threatened in the wild or in in other places as well? Uh, Actually, uh, for threatened species, the International Union of Nature Conservation has provided or actually developed a very good tool where it's classifying a species to different levels based on their population. I mean, I'm talking about the wild population. We are not counting the captive ones because they're not wild anymore. So based on the wild population of, of those species, the IUCN has provided us the IUCN red list, uh, which is actually a great source of information that's telling and helping conservationists around the world to put plans and action to save threatened species. Um, and they have like uh, nine categories like one of the categories is extinct. Extinct means no more animals are there. Uh, not in captivity, neither in the wild. Uh, extinct in the wild, like the example I just gave, the scimitar horn oryx, it, it's a stated as extinct in the wild. So without going through all of them, it's just for conservationists, uh, if, if we want to start or develop um, any conservation planning for certain species, the first thing we look at is the IUCN red list, the statue, the conservation statue of the species. And then from there, we can see how bad is the situation. Heza, it brings into focus, everything you've just said brings into focus exactly how important the Oryx, the program to reintroduce the Oryx was, whether it was captivity or into Africa, into Chad, because a species on the brink of extinction or classified as extinct to be able to bring that species back is incredible. Yes, it is. Really, bringing back a species back to the wild after losing them actually there, it's a, it's a great happiness and success. Mm. And I, I'm telling you, Tim, until today, we are still learning uh, with all the great uh, research activities done and uh, the scientific knowledge there. We are still learning. And... Um, what happened with the African Oryx, it's, uh, yes, it's a great success. We feel happy about it, but we are still monitoring the species and we, we need to know how well they will do. So extinction, it means it's gone. We don't have any more of these species living anywhere. 
we we lost them. Mm. Extinction actually it's it's a natural process, and when a species go extinct, they actually room uh, make a room for a new organism to occur. Um, have you heard about the mass extinction? Yeah, I, this is I mean it's a cycle, isn't it? Almost yes, it, it's it's a cycle mm. uh, and. It's a normal process, but what is actually alarming is the speed of the extinction in our days these days. Mm. Uh, due to the threats that the wildlife are facing at the moment, uh, due to the human activities, which is accelerating the extinction rate, we are losing many, many species. It's kind of the point of this podcast, isn't it? I mean, we take the oryx as the, I guess, the local example, the local success story. But I guess the big international extinction that we've all heard of, aside from the dinosaurs, is the dodo, which was has been extinct mm-hmm. for, I don't know, is it 100 years or so, something like that. And while we're all, I guess, we look at the textbooks and the history books and the natural biology books and see the pictures of this bird, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. But it is because we will never see that bird again. And that's happened in, you know, the lifetime of probably our families. One of our family members going back just a couple of generations would have been alive while that bird was still alive. That's the context. It is sad because I cannot imagine that my young daughter, after like 10 or 20 years, Mm. she cannot see, for example, Dame Gazelle anymore. Yes. Because the Dama Gazelle, for example, they are critically endangered and like less than 100 are left in the wild. Yes, some of them, they are in captivity, but I would love for her to see them actually in their natural uh, environment. So, yeah, I agree with you, Tim. <laughs> I, I, I hope, you know, all this, uh, you know, the conservation, the global conservation uh, efforts, there are lots of eff- efforts have been spent really and 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 financial resources had been put uh, to species conservation. Uh, many projects are, go- uh, are going, uh, but it is a complicated thing. You cannot just say, okay, let's bring them back <laughs> to the wild. That's something not easy to be to be done. Can you expand on any other success stories that we have in Abu Dhabi specifically? Uh, we heard about the oryx, of course, but are there any other success stories? Um, I would say the iconic Arabian oryx story. Uh, it is our story that we are all proud of with the wisdom and the ambitions of late Sheikh Said bin Sultan Al-Nahyan, uh, the founder of the UAE. Uh, with his great vision in 1970s, he noticed that the number of the oryx, Arabian oryx, was dropping. And the Arabian oryx, it's, it's, it's an important symbol in UAE. So with, with all the great effort by taking the leftover from the wild, put them in captivity and start breeding them, increasing their numbers, and then start another collaboration in global level for reintroduction program. The Arabian oryx today has been saved with, with all with all the great effort done on this. And now today we have more than 6,000 oryx living in the UAE. That's incredible. And, you know, I, I mentioned this quite often, but, you know, I, I, I part of what I do as well is tour guiding and explaining the culture and history of the UAE to people visiting. Uh, throughout my learning, I learned that, um, you know, camels 
are not indigenous to the UAE and to the to to Abu Dhabi, for instance. Camels have been imported, uh, you know, throughout centuries and so on from different parts of the world. However, the biggest mammal uh, has actually been the oryx for, you know, a long time. Yeah, that's interesting to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me say something about the Arabian oryx because we we did touch about or talked about the IUCN classification, uh, and I think this is uh, something to be to share and we all have to be proud of is that in, in 1970s, the Arabian uh, uh, oryx was classified um, in the IUCN red list as extinct in the wild. Mm-hmm. And then in 1986, it moved to different categories, which is uh, higher than extended the wild. It became an endangered. And endangered means that Okay, they are endangered, but we need to take an immediate speed to help the species. And then in 2011, the Arabian oryx is being classified as vulnerable, which means that, yes, we have good number of uh, of the species now, wild population. Incredible. Hesa, it's good news, isn't it, in so many ways. But what does it actually mean to have 6,000 oryx in terms of going from on the brink of extinction to vulnerable, in terms of the threat level faced uh, and the health, if you like, of the of the herd kind of thing? What does 6,000 of a species represent? Because it still isn't a massive number, is it? Uh, yes, Um The 6,000, we are talking about the UAE population only. Yes. Uh, but it's actually higher than that if you count the other uh, population in other countries. And what does it mean? Uh, actually, uh, you know, the story of the Arabian oryx, it's it's giving us hope. Right. It's, it's telling us that it's never too late to start acting. It's Yes, it's not easy, as I said before, but to move a number of species from like few individuals to 6000 like, for example it's definitely something uh, something big and uh, you, you just touch the health of the uh, of the animals of course we need to continue monitoring the oryx uh, and any other species that been reintroduced uh, because really seriously the the the, the, the natural <laughs> environment now it's not la- like before anymore uh, you even if you send animals back to the wild i think you still need to continue monitoring them and continue your studies uh, and learn learn what's happening there because that's important for the survival of the species i mean it's a work for generations isn't it, it it's something that has to be you know it's a lifetime achievement really so it is a really impressive Uh, kind of first start. And it, there is real a really positive message from this. But it's really difficult, isn't it, to, to get everybody to work together to further the species, um, to, to link the ex-situ efforts to the in-situ areas, you know, working with zoos, with private collections in protected areas. The collaboration is where we really have to expand our efforts, I guess. Yes, uh, Tim, that's very true. And it can takes long years uh, for you actually maybe to identify the right stakeholder mm. for you to work with. Uh, not only that, uh, you also need to secure uh, the fi- financial uh, resources yeah. because conservation doesn't come free. <laughs> There is cost. <laughs> And course. for many, uh, when you want to think of 
what's the like there's no tangible benefit or something you can see well okay that's I'm paying this and that's what I'm getting back it's not like buying product uh, when it comes to conservation you have to be very patient you you have to think about long term projects and planning you have to find the right pa- uh, partners the right stakeholders that share the same value the same objectives the same aim so hasa can you expand further into what are the literal benefits of extra conservation in a more detailed way as we mentioned today some of the good and successful story in conservation um we know that there are many wild animals live, living in captivity a huge number of them and some of them they are critically endangered and when when we have exotic conservation as a tool for to conserve and save a species we are actually supporting them by helping them to survive in a safe environment in protected environment uh, at the same time uh, maintaining their genetic diversity and we breed them uh, we increase the numbers but even with, in- with increasing the numbers you have to be careful you we want to avoid inbreeding uh, issues with them uh, so exotu conservation it's it's actually cannot be successful a- alone without institute conservation mm-hmm. for those who's, who's working in exotic conservation projects they need to believe on this that you need to continue your work by collaborating with the outside and our target should be not only to have animal in captivities but we need to have them survive for a long time we need to bring them back to where they come from yes it's easy to talk it <laughs> but it's not of course it's not easy to do it but uh, having that in your mind you know when you start any conservation extra conservation planning you should always consider all the factors all the information you have about certain species and remind yourself that you cannot be successful by working alone so hester it takes not just money or planning or the expertise the knowledge it also takes the uh, what is the, what's the word it takes the heart the will it takes the political will and it 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 needs for people to come together to decide this is what we are going to do yes exactly there is no competition you should forget about competition or competing others because yes i want to okay let us just celebrate reintroducing certain species but at the same time you know that you lost an important element somewhere because you think that that element was actually competition for you in conservation world we don't think like that it has to be collaborative work we need to work as one team and we need to secure the fin- financial uh, resources we need to secure the expertise we need uh, we need also to be careful when we are actually looking after them uh, in, 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 ca- in captivity So Hasla, you know, I we always ask uh, our guests what can what can we do or or what should we not do when it comes to uh, helping out, you know? Well, there are many things you can do <laughs> from <laughs> your place. <laughs> Very good. Let's hear it. Um ter- first thing I would advise everyone is to learn to learn about, you know, the wildlife threats, about why species are becoming uh why they are declining. Why we have issues like a climate change. you know learning is is a key and then you need also to think beyond or like out of the box 
many people, they think that the role of wildlife conservation is only on government or the responsibility of uh, conservation organizations, and that's it. But this is not true. Each individual living on this earth has a role to play. So by being the voice of the wildlife, we know that wildlife cannot talk. They cannot come to us and say, well, help, guys, help us. <laughs> so we have to be their voice. We need to understand the impact. What, what would happen if we lose certain species? What's the impact of that on us? Not only us, it's to us and to the future generation as well. So I think maybe we can start participating in, let us say, local plantation of like, for example, UAE local trees, mangrove trees. We, we participate in cleaning campaigns. We, we, we do activities. We start from ourselves by a few, a few steps, like day-to-day -day routine, day-to-day -day life. We think about this earth. We think that it's not only human who's living and sharing this, uh, this planet. We have other living, uh, living things with us. And we respect wildlife. I have seen many examples that people, they, they just don't care. They don't care about the, uh, يعني, I, I would say it happens to be like one time I was just walking uh, in the garden and I saw a few kids. They were actually trying to kill the ants in the park. Mm. Well, I felt bad because maybe those kids, they thought it's fun to kill them. But you know what I did? I just went to them and I spoke to them and said, hi, kids, why you are killing the, the ants? They said, because they bite us. They, they harm us. I said, well, no, they are not. They are living their, their, their natural, uh, natural day. Mm -hmm. And they are there in the park. They are not even in your private houses. So just try to learn something from them instead of killing them. Watch them observe them, see how they are actually living. We need to respect the wildlife. for the, We need to show that respect as well. It's a lesson for life, uh, that mm -hmm. Hesser as well, to let people do what they want. If they're not bothering you, then why would you want to bother them, I guess? Um, <laughs> let me just ask you one final question. In terms of raising awareness, what more can we all do? Aside from learning, uh, as you've pointed out there, um, what else can we, uh, what kind of efforts should we be making? Well, we can all contribute in raising uh, awareness. Um, you know that this year is the year of sustainability in UAE. Mm. And uh, the year of sustainability, actually, it aims uh, to provide uh, the public uh, with uh, actionable steps that they can take at the individual and community level. So... They actually, the Year of Sustainability um, released a guide for uh, the community, for the public, uh, where they want to show them how can we all work together from where we are. We are not saying that you have to be experts in wildlife conservation or biologists to save a species. You can start by simple things from your house. You can be the voice, as I said. You can participate in environmental activities. You can also volunteer, maybe volunteer on rescue, conservation rescue projects and animal care fields. Um, so there are many things you can do. 
And for example, I'm sure ma- many of us, we have our own sh- social media, um, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> hub. So we can share our uh, our care and our, uh, let us say, our thoughts uh, with public. We can share uh, the, the problem. Uh, we can all work together, not only impacting our like changing from ourselves but also we need to impact the friends our friends our families uh, help our kids to understand you know the kids they are the key the kids they are the smartest thing on earth now <laughs> at the moment so you need to, to to bring those kids and teach them because they are very good listeners uh, so spread the word spread the message learn as much as you can and remember that on this earth, we are not alone. These are brilliant uh, suggestions. And I guess what you're saying is simply by participating in environmental efforts, you're raising awareness. Uh, simply by going to clean the beach, you are telling you yourself and your friends and the people around you that this is an important thing to do and so on. And this is such a beautiful message to share with our listeners. Um, I want to jump off, if you don't mind, uh, Hasla, with a final question. This is to round off the episode, um, to collect our thoughts. Um, and I want to know... and. We're, we're, we're interested in, in your perspective uh, on two main things that are happening this year. You mentioned the year of sustainability, of course. It's 2023. Also in Dubai, we have the COP28, the, the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference uh, that runs from November 30th to December 12th. So, Hesla, from your perspective, what does it mean for the UAE to be hosting such an international event like COP28? And specifically in climate change terms, Uh, What do you see emerging from commitments that the UAE has made, including conservation of certain animals, and is continuing to make in the future? Uh, So the UAE hosting uh, COP28 is considered uh, a new success that confirms the leadership of the UAE and global recognition of its efforts in climate change. The UAE was actually the first Gulf country to sign the Paris Agreement Mm -hmm. and the first in the region to commit to reducing emissions in all economic sections by the year 2030. The UAE invested more than $150,000 million in climate action and also launched the Net Zero by 2050 strategic initiative to reduce the greenhouse gases emissions. Also, the government has developed its National Climate Change Plan 2017-2050. I would like to remember uh, remember here uh, what His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al-Nayan. He said that energy and climate change are closely connected and related, and it is important to accelerate increasing the renewable energy production capacity. And the UAE will spend efforts to achieve significant progress on climate actions and move from setting goals to achieving them. So in conclusion, it's time for us to unite, to act and to deliver. What a beautiful summary to everything that we talked uh, about here. Of course, today, Hasla Al-Ghattani was with us, unit head of the conservation programs at Al-Ain Zoo, as well as a member of your Sustainability Experts Network. Hasla, it was great to have you with us. Thank you, Abdurrahman. Thank you, Hasla. Thank you, Tim. I love that. Uh, as we keep saying, Tim, so much information. There's just so much to learn here. 
It really is, Abdurrahman. I mean, what I kind of took away from that was the success story, the the Oryx success story, of course. And I was sat thinking 6,000 animals is not that much. But if you think of it in terms of this was a species that was literally about to, to go away, to fall off the cliff, it's such a positive message. It absolutely is. And, you know, you hear about these stories all the time. Sometimes I think, you know, it probably would have been worse if people didn't intervene and try to support a specific species and therefore basically save our ecology, our environment. Exactly. That's the point. And it's great that people like Hessa are so, you know, she is so passionate and so keen. The little story she told there towards the end about chastising the kids that were you know, killing the ants mm. in the park. She made that point really well. If you talk to children and get through that every species is important, that's a really good thing to get through for the future. It bodes well. Absolutely does. And, you know, just participating, uh, as she explained, helps raise awareness about these little issues. Um, you know, simply planting a mangrove, for instance, helps mm. uh, people understand that this is an important species of plant that we got to protect and, you know, grow more and more of. Exactly. And there's so much that we can all do as well. So today's episode was ex situ conservation in restoring extinct species with our guest, Hessa Al-Khatani, who's the unit head for conservation programs at Alain Zoo. And she's also a member of the Year of Sustainability Experts Network. That's it for another episode of Naturally Educated. Just before we sign off, Abdurrahman, can you let everyone know where to find us to get in touch with the podcast? For sure. We love hearing from you. It really helps us to hear what you think about the discussions we have on Naturally Educated. Uh, please keep reaching out with your comments or if you have a story to share with us about this episode specifically or the season of Naturally Educated. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. There's also our website, ead.gov.ae, or our YouTube channel at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Plus, give us a like and hit the subscribe button wherever you find us. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tim Elliott. And I'm Abdurrahman Zabi. We're back with more on Naturally Educated very soon. We'll talk again then. <laughs>